want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We are singing songs today and over the next couple weeks, songs about the cross, about the blood of Christ shed for us, uh, and that is because today we begin the road to Golgotha. Uh, Today we begin studying the passage of the crucifixion, and we will likely break this passage up into three different sermons, three different sections, so we can slow down and just go go deep uh, with Christ as He dies on the cross for our sins. So today, chapter 23, verses 26 through 31, and I want to preach to you on this theme, misplaced sympathies, misplaced sympathies. And I'm going to just say this straight up as we get going. Jesus doesn't just want our sympathy. He wants us to receive him. So often we can put all of our sympathies into things that are good, things that are right and pure, and miss Jesus along the way. So I want to talk to you on this theme, misplaced sympathies. Luke 23, verse 26 through 31, follow along in your Bible as I read. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning as we study this text. Help me to preach it with clarity, that I would say only things that are right and true, that I would speak your word, not mine, your ideas, not mine. God, I pray that you would help us to have open hearts that are... uh, ready to receive your word, ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On February 21st, 1965, around 3 p.m., Malcolm X was about to give a speech, and in that moment, a man stood up with a sawed-off shotgun and took his life. Around 6 p.m., April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King's assassination took the nation by surprise as well. King had dinner plans that evening as he was leaving the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, and he was killed. It was about 5 p.m. on January 30th, 1948. Gandhi stepped onto the lawn, planning to lead a multi-faith prayer meeting, and he was assassinated. Humans don't plan their assassination. 
it took them by surprise. As Jesus is walking toward Golgotha, every step of this journey has been pre-planned by Jesus himself. This assassination did not take Jesus by surprise. God was not surprised. The cross was not a, whoops, let's try to make the best of it. But all of this, from his accusations to his betrayal to his denial to his arrest to his court hearings, now with the cross on his back, none of it took God by surprise. What Luke wants us to see as we get into this theme of the crucifixion, what Luke wants us to see is that never once is Jesus out of control. He's in control. He's strong the entire time. He did not die a weak victim. Now, you can reject man, mere man, with little consequences. The question I want to ask this morning as we look at this first section of this passage is, what are the consequences of rejecting God? What are the consequences of rejecting Jesus? In verse 26, Jesus is being rejected. It says, they led him away. They would be who? The soldiers, right? That reminds us of what just happened the, the past night, the last 24 hours. Jesus was denied by Peter. He was betrayed uh, by, by Judas. Jesus spent a bloodied, dark night underneath the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. Jesus then, that morning, was led through a series of mock trials the Sanhedrin uh, condemned him. He was laughed at by King Herod. He was sentenced by Pilate. And now they, they being the soldiers, who beat him, mocked him, blindfolded him, spit on him, laughed at him, the soldiers now are leading him away toward Golgotha. Now, at this point, we see a new character arrive in the story. His name is Simon of Cyrene. We don't know a whole lot about Simon. He comes out of nowhere, probably, literally, this guy coming in from out of the country, it says, was there as a pilgrim. Simon woke up that morning, most likely excited about celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem doing the tourist thing. He woke up that morning excited about the opportunity to soon sit down and eat that lamb that's going to be sacrificed as a reminder of what God did for Israel in Exodus so many years before. Simon woke up that morning with no clue that by noon he would be thrown underneath the cross he would be asked to carry this beam for 
the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa, modern-day Libya. For anybody that ever wants to tell you that Christianity is the white man's religion, just remind them that an African helped carry the cross of Jesus Christ on his way to Golgotha. Simon of Cyrene. His name's given to us. As they throw him underneath the cross, there he, uh, he, he helps to carry this beam. In these days, uh, the, the condemned would be given the cross beam for their cross. Or sometimes they would carry the entire thing. We're not exactly sure which it was for Jesus. But what we do know is that Jesus needed help. Luke doesn't tell us why he needed help, but given what we know of the last 24 hours, leaves little to the imagination. He was bloodied, he was bleeding out, he was exhausted, emotionally, physically, drained, and he cannot carry the cross up the cobblestone pathway toward Golgotha. Here is this man, Simon. Pick, get the picture. He's, he's covered now in the blood of Jesus. He's underneath the cross of Jesus. He's following humbly behind Jesus. How astonishing is it that God in His sovereignty would give us a picture in this moment of crucifixion of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? You, i got to remind you, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, you might forget that Jesus said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up his cross and follow me. Here we have a picture of a disciple of Jesus Christ, and his name is Simon of Cyrene. There are really two responses to the crucifixion of Christ, when we think of the death of Christ, when we encounter Jesus on the road to Golgotha, there are two, response, two responses that we're going to see in this text all throughout this crucifixion theme, uh, uh, passage, and two responses that can be had in this room, two responses around the world as we encounter the death of Jesus Christ, and that is this, number one, union with, with Christ taking up our cross, covered in His blood, united with Him in His suffering, union with Christ, or rejection of Christ. Now, why would anybody want to reject Jesus Christ? Think about this with me. Israel in this moment is doing what? They are rejecting Jesus Christ. Why would anybody want to reject Jesus. Why would anybody today want to reject Jesus? Well, the answer is the same reason they rejected him then, and that is because they believe they'd be better off without him. Because Jesus come in, comes in and disrupts their life. I wonder if somebody here feels like you might be better off without Jesus. 
Now, before you get too pious on me, all right, just remember how content you once were in your sin. Just remember how set you were in your ways. How satisfied you were in your flesh. You know, as they say, ignorance is bliss. I once was lost in darkest night. I thought I knew the way. And then I took the red pill. And my eyes are opened to a whole new world. All of a sudden, I feel bad about my sin. All of a sudden, I feel a little pressing about some issues in my life that I never knew existed. I had somebody tell me once, about a year after they became a Christian, they were like, man, before I became a Christian, I just felt like I was a pretty good person. And a year later, I just feel like I'm so, such a miserable individual. I keep pulling back layers of sin in my life, and, and I find more sin underneath that. And they thought they were doing something wrong, and I was like, brother, that's the Holy Spirit. Like, welcome to the Christian life. Your eyes have been opened. Jesus comes in and he disrupts the life that we once had. I've thought about writing a book someday called How Jesus Ruined My Life. Because he does. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we say that tongue in cheek, but there's a there's truth to that. He disrupts things. He ruins things. And sometimes we are tempted to think that we would just be better off without Jesus. If we could just live however we wanted to live, we would just be happier and better off. Well, would we? Answer. All right, I'm gonna, just going to tell you right now. <laughs> no. All right? Without Jesus, your problems would only increase. You might feel better for a season, and that's it. You might feel like the victor for a season, and that's it. Your problems would only increase, and that's what we're about to see here. The nation is rejecting Jesus. They're putting off Jesus. And in verses 28 through 31, we see Jesus' final word to the nation. And I, I was actually going to preach... I was going to preach through uh, verse 43 today, and I got to verse 31, and I was like, I just can't go past this. What Jesus is saying here is so unique. Only Luke records it. Like, if we didn't have Luke, we would never knew that Jesus said this. And it's so strange. We've got to dig into it. We've got to stop. We've got to slow down. So let's... Let's dig in. Let's dig into it. Look at verse 27. Setting the stage, there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Now, some people uh, automatically assume that the women here are Jesus' friends, such as Mary Magdalene or Mary and Martha. I don't actually think these are Jesus' friends. As a matter of fact, they're called daughters of Jerusalem in verse 28. Uh, Jesus' friends weren't actually from Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem is a title that is 
used for uh, often a reference to the whole of Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah foresees the coming destruction, and he foresees the coming Messiah. And what he says in Zechariah 9.9 is, Daughters of Jerusalem, rejoice, for your king has come. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's taking Zechariah 9.9 and actually reversing it. And he's saying, Daughters of Jerusalem, mourn, for your king, or the king, is being rejected. Crowds of people are following him, and there are these women. Well, why are they mourning and lamenting? It was actually part of their culture. As uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, Israel citizens were being led to a crucifixion, they would have a crowd of usually women who were professional mourners and lamenters, and they would come alongside and behind the, uh, uh, the condemned. This isn't to say that they weren't completely, you know, just playing, acting in their, in their sympathy. There, there may have been some element of true sympathy here, some element of true mourning, but I think they probably are these professional mourners. And so here Jesus is walking down, or up rather, this road to Golgotha, what's known as the Via Della Rosa, the, the way of suffering. And as he's walking this road, there are these women who are mourning and lamenting. And what Jesus says in verse 28, if you were there, you'd be like, what did he just say? In verse 28, he turns and he looks at them. And he says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Come on, can you, can you picture this with me? Where's Jesus right now? He's underneath the cross. He's so weak that he can't even carry it. He's probably stumbling to his knees, back up on his feet, back down to his knees. Bloodied, beaten, tortured. Condemned by their injustice, bloodied by their whips, shamed by their mocking, crushed by the weight of this beam. Yet, in this moment, Jesus doesn't feel sorry for himself, he feels sorry for others. Jesus doesn't want sympathy from those rejecting him, he sympathizes for others. Jesus doesn't seek vengeance, Jesus doesn't rage with anger, Jesus has concern for others while he's undergoing such torture. In this moment, Jesus pities the people who are killing him. Never has the world seen such love. If I could summarize what Jesus says here, it's basically this. Jesus declares no doom for himself, but sees only doom for those who are rejecting him. In verse 29, he says, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming. That's language 
for this movement of God, a significant event that's about to happen in God's plan. This time of judgment that is coming. 35 to 40 years after Jesus dies, Rome is going to come in and completely destroy Jerusalem. It happened in the year A.D. 70. In that year, a man named Josephus was captured, taken prisoner. And Josephus becomes one of the premier historians of the first century. So we actually have an eyewitness account of what happened in the year A.D. 70 through Josephus. Josephus explains that it began actually in the year 66. It was a four-year siege as Rome basically said, all right, we're done with Israel. We are going to come in and destroy Jerusalem. In AD 70 was the final assault. In the final assault against Jerusalem, 1.1 million Jews died. The temple was set in flames. Now, you've got to remember the grand temple. This was, the temple was like the centerpiece of worship for Israel. It was set on fire. But Josephus says that the blood of the victims was even greater than the flames from the temple. As the temple burned, he said that those who had been starving to death in Jerusalem because their food supply was cut off, who, who weren't even able to say anything for days, uh, were able to let out shrieks of horror as they saw the temple come down. He tells us that in this final raid that Roman soldiers were literally climbing over piles of dead body to capture the runaway refugees. It was horrific. Look what Jesus says. Just back up. He says, weep not just for yourselves, but for who? Your children. Your children. In about a generation from now. Jesus foresees this massive event in which God's judgment through Rome comes on Jerusalem. And he sees it. He understands it to be connected with their rejection of him. It was so bad in that day that Jesus says in verse 29, he says, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Listen, all throughout uh, Jewish understanding, Jewish culture, the blessed are those who are able to have children. To have kids is understood to be a blessing, and Jesus is reversing this blessing. And he delivers this strange beatitude, and he says, blessed are the barren. Why? Because they will have less to mourn in that day. For those who have no family, those who have no kids, they're going to have the least amount of suffering. The greatest suffering will come from mothers and fathers who see their children slaughtered on that day. It's going to be so bad that verse 30, he says, they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Meaning we wish, 
We were never born. We wish we could just die. Here he's quoting Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. Well, let's back up, all right? About 700 years. Are you guys still with me? We're going all over uh, uh, the timeline right now. We just went back 700 years. 700, 7, 722 B.C. Hosea, another prophet. He sees coming destruction from Assyria. He's warning the northern kingdom of Israel to repent, to turn, as Assyria is about to come in. And, and Hosea says that it's going to be so bad when Assyria comes that they're going to say, we wish that the mountains would fall on us and that the hills would cover us. Jesus uses that here as he is warning these people of what's to come in A.D. 70. He's basically saying God judged the northern kingdom through Israel then and what's, or Assyria then and what's coming in just a matter of a generation is very similar to that judgment. There's another, another judgment that is still to come. Keep that in mind. Hold off on that thought for just a moment. Because Jesus, before he closes this talk, he gives them a, a, a proverb in verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Let me break that down for you real quick here. This weekend kind of feels like fall, doesn't it? We get this little fresh, cool air. And I felt like having like a little bonfire in my backyard last night. In fall, we like to hang outside, have little bonfires. As a, as a child, I, I remember, grew up in Ohio, so we had a lot of bonfires. We were having a bonfire. It was fall. And my dad said, go get some wood for the fire. And I had a saw. I don't know why I had a saw when, as a child, but I had a saw. It was my own saw. And I went over to our tree. It was a maple tree, and I cut off a branch. I, I was so proud of myself. I'm going to have the biggest piece of wood for this fire. The wood was completely green. And I brought it over. My dad looked at it, and he was like, you didn't pick this up, did you? I remember him telling me, like, it's green. Don't, don't Joel, don't cut the green wood. <laughs> he said, pick up the stuff that's dead and dry. Jesus is saying, if they act like this when things are green, when the wood is green, how are they going to act when the wood is dead and dry? The imagery is a little hard to understand exactly what he's referring to. The green wood has got to be a reference to Jesus. Everybody agrees on that. It could mean if Rome is doing this to me when things are green, when I'm here, this is how Rome's treating me. Imagine how they're going to treat you in 30 or 40 years when everything's dead and dry. It could mean, some others say, if the Jews are doing this to me, if Israel is treating me in this way, how much more will God judge you when things are dead and dry? Or they actually, in verse 31, they could actually be a reference to God. God is often referred to as they in the Bible. 
if God is doing these things, if what you see is God's judgment of his people on my head, how much more is he going to judge you? I don't know exactly which one of those is correct, but I think the theme is clear. If this, how much worse? Meaning what you see happening with Christ is nothing compared to what's going to happen when the wood is all dead and dry. You don't want to be around, church, when everything is dead and dry. That's, that's the point. That's the picture. It's a word of warning. It's a word of judgment. It's a word that's encouraged to call out repentance among those who are currently dead and dry. So how, how should the Jesus rejectors respond to the death of Jesus? Well, first, Jesus doesn't want the sympathy of those who reject him. Let me say that again. Jesus doesn't want the sympathy of those who reject him. Let me, let me uh, make up a parable for you right now. There's a politician. It's political season, so I can't not like, use para, uh, poli- politics as examples, right? There's a politician who spends his whole career talking about Christians' rights. And then he stands before God, and God says, I never knew you. And he says, but I was sympathetic to your cause my entire life. I think what Jesus is saying is, is I don't want your sympathy. I don't want your sympathy. They are concerned about religious freedoms, but not concerned about their own soul. They're concerned about equity and justice, but not concerned about their own soul. Like a defense attorney who takes up the case of Jesus. Such a wrongful death, right? Such a great injustice. And he spends his entire career arguing for justice for Jesus. But he never received Christ as his hope, as his Lord. You see, it's easy for somebody... It's easy for somebody to be all about religious freedoms. But are they actually an active member in a local church? It's easy for somebody to talk about their love for humanity, but do they love humans in particular? It's easy for somebody to talk about changing the community, but are they a faithful presence themselves in the community? It's easy for somebody to talk about Hey, we need to all come together. But, but do they even know their neighbor? It's easy for somebody to talk about immigration. But have they embraced hospitality toward the stranger in their own home? It's easy for somebody to talk about hashtag me too. 
But have they also given themselves over to the depraved thirst of the culture around us? I'm talking about misplaced sympathies. Meaning as long as as we are not hospitable in here, there will always be a fear of the foreigner out there. As long as, we always, as long as we have lust in here, there will always be hashtag me too out there. As long as we have selfishness in here, there will always be abuse out there. As long as we have unfairness in here, there will always be injustice out there. I'm talking about misplaced sympathies. Jesus doesn't want your social media sympathy. He wants your heart. He wants the whole of who you are. He wants your being. He wants you in Him. Secondly, Jesus wants those who reject Him to weep for themselves. Now think about this. This There's actually something here. Weep for yourselves. What happens when somebody's actually weeping finally for themselves? That's called repentance. This is, a, this is an invitation, I believe, to repentance. There is this beautiful moment. I've seen it so many times. I've seen it just recently. This beautiful moment where somebody is in sin. And when they're in sin, what are they doing? They're, they're looking at everybody else. Everybody else is the problem. They just go on rants about this person and that person. And then finally, this beautiful moment that I'm talking about is when this individual finally broke down and started to weep and say, no, it's me. It's me. Weep for yourselves. Weep not over the condition of everybody else. Weep for the state of your own wrecked soul. This is what Jesus is telling us this morning. Assyria in 722 or, or, or Rome in AD 70 is really a picture of yet another judgment that is to come. And in this judgment, it's not going to come through the sword of Assyria. It's not going to come through the soldiers of Rome. But in this next judgment, it is going to come through Jesus Christ himself coming back as the judge. And let me quote Jesus right now. Jesus says, If you acknowledge me now before men, I will acknowledge you then before God. If you deny me now before men, I will deny you then before God. Are you in Christ? For anybody who is not in Christ, they will be denied by Christ before the Father then and the judgment that is coming in that final day. It makes what happened in AD 70, Jerusalem, look like child's play. The judgment in that final day is eternal torment under the wrath of a holy God. Now, my point is this. As we get into the crucifixion, Jesus is not a weak, helpless victim. But Jesus is in control. 
the entire time. Delivering a warning. Let me ask you this question. Do you know the joy of Jesus? Now somebody's going to say, how are you going to talk about that when you've been giving us such heavy stuff? How are you going to all of a sudden ask me, do you know the joy? Yay! Joy in Jesus. I know you're all smiling under those masks. Listen, there is not a believer in this room that should walk out of here feeling heavy or condemned. God said in John chapter 3, verse 17, He did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. We're talking about salvation here from judgments. Let me, let me close with this illustration. I got this from a, a man named Richard Chin during his talk at the, together for the Gospel Conference. Suppose you're trying to get to Australia from here. Let's say from BWI, because you ain't going to get there from here. Well, you could try, right, and you'd walk to the Atlantic Ocean and then start swimming and then cross into the Indian Ocean and keep swimming or take a boat. Now, how are you going to get there? You're going to get there through what? Come on. An, an airplane, right. Now, how does an airplane get you from point A to point B? This is what the preacher said. He said the, the airplane doesn't get you there through you being under the power of the airplane. If you are underneath the power of the airplane, you are only going to be destroyed by its power. You're not going to get to Australia through following the airplane. Imagine you set off and you say, I'm going to be an airplane follower. And you line up behind that plane, BWI runway, and it starts moving, and you're like, ah, I'm following the airplane. Boom, it's gone. It's, you're not going to get to Australia through following the airplane. You're not going to get to, the, uh, to Australia through becoming an airplane because you're not an airplane, right? How are you going to get there? He said, you're going to get to Australia through being in the airplane, a recipient of all that the airplane is. It's going to get you to your destination. I said there's two ways to respond to the death of Jesus Christ, rejection of Christ or union with Christ. To say, I don't need him, or to say, that is my only hope. I need to get into that plane. The door is open. The door is open. Jesus, this whole time, he's saying, look, weep for yourselves because you're down there. You're not in here. The door is open. Come in. All who are weary, come in. All who need help, come in. All who can't do it on your own, come in. That's what this message is about. To be in Christ is our only option. How does Jesus safely get us through the judgment? Well, let me tell you how. 
is because Jesus went through the judgment himself. So by 3 p.m. on this day, he's dying on the cross. For what? For our sins. Our judgment. All right, the, the, the Assyria, the AD 70, or really the end judgment that we all deserve is placed onto Christ. He's a recipient of our judgment and he goes through it. And you say, well, how can that be good? How can that be right? Like, how can Simon of Cyrene, who's underneath the cross in blood, how can that be a picture of a disciple? Well, it's because, like I said, Jesus went through the judgment, meaning he didn't stay in the grave. If he stayed in the grave, then he would have never come out through the judgment. But three days later, Sunday morning, Jesus gets up. He rises from the dead. The point is this. God will always have the last word. He will have the last word. How do we get through the judgment? It is through our union with Christ. It's through being with Him in this moment. God never lost a battle. He's my pilot. He's my captain. I don't know about you, but I am going to get on that plane. Because that's my only hope in life and in death. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have hope. God, we have heard a, a, a word of judgment this morning, but it is not a word that gives us a heavy heart. Because you have not left us with judgment. You did not come into the world to condemn, but to save. So we thank you, Lord, for saving us. I pray that nobody in this room will reject Jesus this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.